0: Well, I hope everyone's doing great today. We will be discussing the Second War for Independence, as you see on your screen. Uh, We'll be focusing on the years between 1812 and 1824. Uh, In your American pageant, this will be uh, chapter 12. Due to widespread disunity, the War of 1812 ranks as one of America's worst fought wars. There was no burning anger or passion as there was in the American Revolution that was able to unite the states against Britain. Um, The regular army was particularly bad and scattered throughout the United States. The generals during this war were to say the least not great military strategists. Uh, If you wanted to put it even worse you could say that they were quite possibly senile and old. The uh, offensive strategy that we took up against Canada was especially poor conceived and carried out. The British And the Canadians, on the other hand, displayed an enthusiasm early on in the war, um, and they captured American forts and commanded, for the most part, the upper Great Lakes area and region for the remainder of that war. The Americans were led by men like Oliver Hazard Perry, who built a fleet of ships and manned them with inexperienced men but were still able to capture a British fleet. His victory also helped and um, partnered with General William Henry Harrison's defeat of the British at the Battle of the Thames helped bring more enthusiasm and increased morale for the war. By 1814, 10,000 British troops prepared to deliver a crushing blow to the Americans along the Lake Champlain route. But on September 11th, the American army challenged the British and was able to snatch victory from them um, and to repel the British force and to force them into retreat. In August of 1814, British troops landed in the Chesapeake Bay Area. In doing so, they dispersed 6,000 panic Americans and proceeded to enter Washington, D.C. and burn most of the buildings that were there. Meanwhile, in Baltimore, another British fleet arrived but was beaten back by a privateer defender of Fort McHenry. This is also where Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner, which became our national anthem. Another British army threatened the entire Mississippi Valley, coming in through New Orleans. Andrew Jackson, fresh off of his slaughter of Creek Indians in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, led a hodgepodge force of 7,000 sailors, regulars, pirates, and Frenchmen, entrenching them and helping to defeat 8,000 overconfident British that had launched a frontal attack in what would be called the Battle of New Orleans. News of the British defeat reached Washington in early February of 1815. And two weeks later, news came from peace from Great Britain. Many citizens assumed that the British, having been beaten by Jackson, finally wanted peace, lest they be beaten again by these, quote, awesome Americans. During the war, the American Navy had oddly done better than the Army, since the sailors were the most angry over British impressment of sailors. However, Britain responded with the naval blockade, raiding ships and ruining American economic life such as fishing. The Treaty of Ghent concluded the War of 1812. When discussions first began, the confident British made sweeping demands for a neutralized Indian buffer state in the Great Lakes region. The British also demanded control of the Great Lakes and a substantial part of conquered Maine. But the Americans, led by my personal favorite John Quincy Adams, refused this. And as the American victories piled up, the British began to reconsider their position. The Treaty of Ghent was finally signed December 24, 1814. It was an armistice, acknowledging a draw in the war and ignoring the demands of either side. Each side simply stopped fighting. The main issue was the war, impressment, and this was left unresolved. Before the Battle of New Orleans, The capture of New Orleans seemed imminent. States gathered together, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Rhode Island, and secretly met in Hartford from December 15th to January 5th. The main objective was to discuss their grievances and to seek a redress for their wrongs. While a few of the members there talked about secession, most wanted financial assistance from Washington to compensate for lost trade. They also discussed an amendment requiring two-thirds of a majority for all declaration of embargoes except during invasions. Three special envoys from Massachusetts went to Washington DC where they were greeted with news from New Orleans that Andrew Jackson had won. Their mission failed and they sank away into disgrace and obscurity. The Hartford Convention proved to be the death of the Federalist Party as their last presidential nomination Was completely and utterly destroyed by James Monroe in 1816. The War of 1812 was a small war involving some 6,000 Americans killed or wounded. Example, when Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, he had 500,000 men. When Madison tried to invade Canada, he had about 5,000 men. Yet the Americans proved that they could again stand up for what they felt was right and naval officers in the United States had gained new respect. American diplomats were treated with more respect than ever before. The Federalist Party died forever, and new war heroes like Andrew Jackson and William Henry Harrison emerged. Manufacturing also prospered during the British blockade, since there was no way to import goods. Incidents like the burning of Washington added fuel to the bitter conflict between Britain and the United States and led to the hatred of the nations for years after the war, though few would have guessed that the War of 1812 would be the last war America fought against Britain. Many Canadians felt betrayed by the Treaty of Ghent, and since since no Indian buffer state had been achieved, the Indians left by the British were forced to make treaties where they could with the United States. In 1817, though after a heated naval arms race in the Great Lakes region, A treaty was signed between the United States and Britain that provided the world's longest unfortified boundary, 5,527 miles. After Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo, Europe sank into an exhaustion of peace and America looked west to further expand. After the war, American nationalism really took off. Authors like Washington Irving and James Fenimore Cooper, both pictured here, wrote tales like Rumpelstiltskin, The Knickerbocker Tales, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, The Leather Stocking Tales, and The Last of the Mohicans, and these men gained international recognition. The North American Review debuted in 1815, and American painters painted landscapes of America on their canvases, while history books were for the first time being written by Americans and for Americans. Washington DC would rise from the ashes and be better than ever. The Navy and the Army would grow stronger. Stephen Decatur, the naval hero of the War of 1812 on the Barbary Coast expeditions, was famous for his American toast after his return from the Mediterranean. Our country, in her intercourse with foreign nations, may she always be in the right, but our country right or wrong. After the war, British competitors dumped their goods onto America at cheap prices. So America responded with the Tariff of 1816, the first in US history designed for protection, which put a 20 to 25% tariff on dutable imports. It was not high enough, but it was a great start, and in 1824 Henry Clay established a program called the American System. The system began with a strong banking system. It advocated a protective tariff behind which the eastern manufacturing companies would flourish. It also included a network of roads and canals, especially in Ohio Valley, to be funded through the tariff and through which would flow foodstuffs and raw materials from the south and west to the north and the east. Lack of effective transportation had been one of the problems of the War of 1812, especially in the west. In 1817, Congress sought to distribute $1.5 million to the states for internal improvements, but Madison vetoed it, saying it was unconstitutional, thus making the states look for their own money to build the badly needed road systems. James Monroe defeated his Federalist opponent 183 to 34 in the Electoral College and ushered in a short period of one-party rule. He straddled the generations of the Founding Fathers and the new age of nationalism. Early in 1817, Monroe took a goodwill tour venturing deep into New England, where he received a heartwarming welcome. A Boston newspaper even went as far as to declare that an era of good feelings had begun. However, the seeds of sectional troubles were planted. Notably, the South did not like the tariff, saying that it only benefited the North, and the South was forced to pay higher prices. The South disliked the internal improvements that linked the North and the West, not seeing any benefit in paying taxes for roads and canals in other states. The Panic of 1819 was a paralyzing economic panic, the first since Washington's times that engulfed the United States, bringing in deflation, depression, bankruptcies, bank failures, unemployment, soup kitchens, and overcrowded debtor's prisons. A major cause of the panic was overspeculation in land prices where the Bank of the United States fell heavily into debt. Oddly, this started an almost predictable chain of panics or recessions. An economic panic occurred every 20 years in the 1800s, the years 1819, 1837, 57, 73, and 1893. The West was especially hit hard, and the Bank of the United States would soon be viewed upon as the cause. There was also a tension against debtors where, in a few overplayed cases, mothers owing only a few dollars were torn away from their infants by their creditors. Between 1791 and 1819, nine frontier states had joined the original 13 states. This explosive expansion of the West was due in part to cheap land, the elimination of the Indian menace, the Ohio fever, and the need for land by tobacco farmers who had exhausted Their current land. The Cumberland Road begun in 1811 and ran ultimately from western Michigan to Illinois and the first steamboat on the western waters appeared in 1811. The west was still not populous and it was politically weak, was forced to ally itself with other sections and demanded cheap acreage. The Land Act of 1820 gave the west its wish by authorizing a buyer to purchase 80 acres of land at a minimum of $1.25 an acre in cash. The West demanded, and slowly got, cheap transportation as well. Sectional tensions between the North and the South came to a boil when Missouri wanted to become a slave state. Although it met all the requirements of becoming a state, the House of Representatives stymied the plans for statehood when it proposed the Talmadge Amendment. Which provided that no more slaves be brought to Missouri and also provided for the gradual emancipation of children born to slave parents already in Missouri. This was shot down in the Senate. Angry Southerners saw this as a great threat. If the Northerners could wipe out slavery in Missouri, they might also try to do the same in the rest of the slave states. Plus, the North was starting to get more prosperous and more populous than the South. Finally, The deadlock was broken by a bundle of compromises known as the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise would admit the slave state of Missouri, while Maine would be admitted as a free state, keeping the balance of power from 11 free and 11 slave to 12 and 12. All new states north of the 3630 parallel would be free, and new states south of this line would be slave. Both the north and the south gained something, But neither was totally happy. The compromise did work for many years after. Monroe would have been doomed after the 1819 panic and the Missouri problem, but he was so popular and the Federalists were so weak that he won again in 1820 by all but one vote. Unanimity was still reserved for Washington's first presidency. Chief Justice John Marshall helped to bolster the power of the government at the expense of the states. In the Supreme Court case, McCullough v. Maryland, the case involved Maryland trying to destroy the Bank of the United States by taxing its currency notes. Marshall invoked Hamiltonian principles of implied power and denied Maryland's right to tax the bank, and also gave the doctrine of loose construction, using the elastic clause of the Constitution as its basis. He implied that the Constitution was to last for many ages, and thereby was constructed loosely flexibly, and to be bent at times as needed, as the times changed. In Cohen versus Virginia in 1821, the Cohens had been found guilty by Virginia courts of illegally selling lottery tickets and had appealed to the Supreme Court and had lost, but Marshall asserted the right of the Supreme Court to review decisions of the state Supreme Courts in all questions involving power of the federal government. The federal government won, the states lost. In Gibbons v. Ogden in 1824, New York tried to grant monopoly of waterborne commerce. Marshall struck it down, saying that only Congress can control interstate commerce, not the states themselves. Once again, it was another blow toward states' rights. The Supreme Court also worked against excesses of democracy. In Fletcher v. Peck, after Georgia fraudulently granted 35 million acres in Yazoo River County land in Mississippi to privateers, the legislature repealed it after a public outcry. But Marshall ruled that it was a contract and that the states couldn't impair a contract. In Dartmouth College versus Woodard, Dartmouth had been granted a charter by King George III, but New Hampshire had tried to change it. Dartmouth appealed, using alumni Daniel Webster as, to work as his lawyer. Marshall ruled that the original charter must stand, it was a contract, and the Constitution protected those, and overruled state rulings. Marshall's rulings gave the Supreme Court its powers and greatly strengthened the federal government, giving it power to overrule the state government sometimes. The Treaty of 1818 put the northern boundary of Louisiana Purchase at the 49th parallel and provided for 10-year joint occupation of the Oregon Territory with Great Britain without a surrender of rights claimed by either Britain or America. When revolutions broke out in South and Central America, Spanish troops in Florida were withdrawn to put down rebellious rebellions, and Indian attacks ravaged the American land while Indians would retreat back into Spanish territory. Andrew Jackson swept across the Florida border, hanged two Indian chiefs without ceremony, executed two British subjects for assisting Indians, and seized St. Mark's and Pensacola. Monroe consulted with his cabinet as to what to do against Jackson, all wanted to punish him except for John Quincy Adams, who demanded huge concessions from Spain. The Florida Purchase Treaty of 1819 had Spain cede Florida and its shadowy claims to Oregon in exchange for Texas. The United States paid $5 million to Spain for Florida. Monarchs in Europe were now determined to protect the world against democracy and crushed democratic rebellions in Italy in 1821 and Spain in 1823, much to the alarm of the Americans. Also, Russia's claim to North American territory were intruding and making Americans nervous that Russia might claim territory that was, quote, rightfully Americans. Then, in August of 1823, the British Foreign Secretary, George Canning, approached the American minister in London, proposing that the United States and Britain combine in a joint declaration renouncing any interest in acquiring Latin American territory and specifically warning European despots to keep their hands off of Latin American politics. The sly and careful John Quincy Adams sensed a problem in the proposal. He correctly assumed that the European powers were not going to invade America anytime soon and knew that a self-denouncing alliance with Britain would morally tie the hands of the United States. He knew that British boats would need to protect South America if they wanted to protect their merchant trade, and he presumed it safe to blow a defiant, nationalistic blast at all of Europe in doing so. In late 1823, the Monroe Doctrine was born, incorporating non-colonialization and non-intervention. Dedicated primarily to Russia in the West, Monroe said that no colonialization in the Americas could happen anymore, and European nations, could not intervene in Latin American affairs from this point forward. In return, the United States agreed that it would not interfere in the Greek democratic revolt against Turkey.